It is a great honor to introduce to you our final guest speaker in our Looking for Leaders message series. We started this series six weeks ago with the idea that everything rises and falls with leadership. And our guest today has been one of the clearest examples of this truth in my own life and many of your lives as well. It was the summer of 1995 when Mike Ramsdale was appointed as senior pastor of First Methodist Mansfield. And at that time, this faith family was a small church in which God had planted some big dreams that was looking for a leader to enable those dreams to become a reality. For the 20 years that Mike served as senior pastor here, he was a leader that consistently worked to bring those dreams to life. But he was also a leader that was intentional about raising up others that would expand and extend and continue our mission and our ministry. The great work that he did here in Mansfield continues today in his current role as the Executive Director for the Center for Evangelism and Church Growth for the Central Texas Annual Conference. One of the richest blessings of both my personal and professional life was the 11-year leadership workshop that I was a part of, sharing my life and ministry with Mike. And that's just one of the reasons that I know that you are in for a great blessing today. And so friends, will you now join me in welcoming my friend and mentor, Reverend Mike Ramsdale. Thank you for that welcome. Um, you know, a year is a long time, not very long either, and so, but it's very good to be back to share in a few words with you this weekend. I've preached Saturday night, and it's my fourth time to preach today. Rhonda and I, Rhonda's here sitting there in the second row. She's been there many times before, my wife Rhonda. Uh, she uh, and I, with all our family, were in Destin, Florida for about a week. We've enjoyed that season with our family. Uh, not, all nine of our grandkids were there, and we had success. There was only two or three things broken in the house in that length of time. That's pretty good, uh, considering all those grandkids there. But we're, we're back and, and looking forward to sharing with you today. I want to thank Pastor David for uh, giving this chance to preach. He offered this to me a long time ago. He said, will you come in August? I said, are you sure? He said, yes, I want you to come this day. I said that I would, so here I am. So you know how I feel about Pastor David. If you're a guest here, Pastor David is a senior pastor of this church. He was a pastor here for a long time uh, before that and been on the staff for a long time. And, uh, and I have a picture of David and myself standing side by side on the teaching steps outside, it's in Jerusalem, outside where the Temple Mount is. That's in my office, so it shows you about the feeling I have about David, who is now your senior pastor, and so, so well in leading this great church to what's next for First Methodist Mansfield. I can't say and tell you how much and how significant this church is. I know even more now that I'm removed from it for a year working denominationally and conference-wide with what I'm doing today about how significant this church is in so many ways, model, example, teaching. And when I go everywhere, I'll, I have to say too often, here's what we did at Mansfield, and thank it to work for you too. And so celebrate that as well. David asked me to share with you what I'm doing now. Uh, I can tell you, tell you first my title. You got a little bit of it. Uh, let me give you the full title that I now have. Uh, I am the, uh, the executive director of the Lamar E. Smith Center for Evangelism and Church Growth, Central Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church. That's my whole title. <laughs> if title means anything, I got a whacking long title there for you to be able to see. 
Uh, but I'm still Mike to you, so keep, keep that in mind. I'm going to show you two pictures that explain what I'm doing now. First one is, uh, we put this together for the center, and so I've kind of directed uh, this. And here is uh, the statement that explains it, if anything can. The purpose of the Center for Evangelism and Church Growth is to assist, equip, resource, and encourage pastors, local congregations, and new church start leaders in growing existing churches, creating new faith communities, and planting new churches. The key directive is being faithful to the mission of the United Methodist Church and the Central Texas Conference, making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And that is the mission statement for the entire Methodist Church, making disciples of Jesus Christ to change the world. And I added to that a few words from uh, Jesus and Matthew, go make disciples of all the world. And I put that together for the center, so I'm kind of directing that uh, with uh, leadership around me. The second slide will explain further. Our first major initiative we put underway, and that came online just about a month ago, we want to create or help create 100 new faith communities in this area of Texas, which has 4 million people in it. That's the area the center reflects its ministry into from just north of Austin, Fort Worth, Arlington, uh, Waco. I go on with the cities that are connected with it. And that's our goal to do that, to help churches do and create, serve the communities of four million people around us with what we're being called to do, make disciples of Jesus Christ, the transformation of the world. And I'm pleased to be able to be a part of that in my own life ministry today. Now I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, if you don't, I'm going to read it for you. So don't, don't despair. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to look at that in about three or four minutes. But I want you to have it all ready when I get there. Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite books of the Bible, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. Philippians chapter 2, toward the end of your Bible, some words of Paul. I'm hearing the pages slow down on flipping, so you're about there. I'll talk a little bit about, uh, really, I think, the world that you and I live in, that we're either Christians in or being called to be Christians in. And there are some things about it that I think are very peculiar to know about and to be able to pinpoint. One is that our culture is a lot about rights, R-I-G-H-T-S. People say often, I know my rights. If you get arrested, you're given your rights. You know, we talk about rights. And we have, of course, some of that in our own Bill of Rights in our nation. Some of the things that we have rights about in our Bill of Rights are right to religion. We can worship where, who, however we want to. We have a right to free speech, say what you want with certain limitations, free press, free assembly, the ability to put petition, we have our opinion, we want you to know what it is, government, please, bear arms, no quartering, if you don't know what that is, the army can't put a battalion of soldiers in your house without your permission. It goes back 200 years ago when that was an issue, it's not much today. Uh, have no courting, equal justice, we've been able to own property of our own. Some countries in that, in that time when our country was founded, you couldn't own private property. It was owned all by the government or by the wealthy, and poor people couldn't own any kind of land at all. Uh, you have free travel, uh, you can work, travel where you want, go where you want, when you want. You can work where you want, when you want, for who you want. Uh, you can have any family you want, meaning you can marry who you want. No one's going to tell you who you can and you can't marry. Uh, you can have education. It's possible. Uh, it's, everybody can go to school if they want to. It's not just limited to some. Uh, you can be a part of a political party. You can create a political party if you want to. Uh, we can join a union or have a union. We can be a part of a legal group or legal stuff. And those are all some, uh, in a nutshell, rights that are part of being an American. 
And we like that. We fought for that. I was in the military and served to defend those rights. Rights are good. We like them. So I want you to kind of connect with that for a moment. A second thought is about fairness or equality. You know, it's not fair. That's not fair is a common conversation piece for almost all of us in various times. I will tell you, my nine grandkids on vacation, it was a very popular conversation. It's not fair. She got, he got, he did, they did, I didn't, we, you know, how it goes. They were in the front seat the last trip. It's my turn now to be in that seat. That's what we do. And, and I've learned what that means. What that means is I am trying to manipul manipulate the situation to my own advantage by claiming it's not fair. I mean, that's something that we sometimes do, and adults do it as well. It's about being fair. And the third thing in the beginning here, disrespect or lack of respect. A term some might use, you disrespected me, or you shorten that, you dissed me, can get you punched, shot, kicked, run over, or killed. Those are all possible outcomes of disrespecting someone. Why? Because often people who don't respect themselves feel better when they demand respect from others. Looking for that from some outside source. So the idea of respect and equality and fairness and rights are all a pervading thing all around us all the time. And I'm not criticizing any of that. I want to be in a country that's free, where I can pursue those things, where I can try to find fairness and I know my rights. That's important. Now, with that in mind, I want to read Philippians chapter 2, which is just the opposite of that for those who choose to follow Christ. You have turned to it already. I'm going to read it now, beginning of verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, Having the same love, love us in Jesus, being in one spirit, as our Lord was, and of one mind with God. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather than humility, value others above yourselves. Now, how many know that's hard to do? It's hard to value those around us above ourselves, especially if we think they don't deserve it or if we're looking for fairness or equality ourselves or respect or our rights. And, and if that's our life so wrapped up in that, how do we value other people above ourselves? Think about that. It goes on to say, verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, now everything in life that matters comes from a relationship with God, with each other, with family, friends, church family. Everything that really counts and matters and brings value to life comes from a relationship according to Scripture. So in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That means same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now let's process that for a moment. Jesus, we're told, is God. He is God's Son. He had the very nature of God, but he did not take advantage of that nature to demand respect or to demand his rights or to create fairness for himself. He did not do that with his own nature as God on this earth. Instead, here's what he did, verse 7, rather he made himself nothing. And when I got out of high school, that was not my goal in life. 
It was not one of the things in the high school yearbook that people put down, uh, my goal, I'm working to become nothing one day. I'm going to go off to college here. I'm going to join the military. I'm going to get rich and wealthy. I'm going to be famous. All kinds of goals and missions we have. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. We ought to have goals and things we want to accomplish and do and achieve, even gain. But here's what Jesus did. He made himself nothing, and his choice was to do that. He did not have to. And he goes on to say what that is. By taking the very nature of a servant. And the word servant here means bondservant or slave. He sold himself into slavery to serve the world that he lives in. And that's you and me. Being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Think of the word obedient. He did what? He was obedient to God. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. With that in mind, there's only one who's ever lived that was equal with God and had the right to demand respect, right to demand whatever he chose according to how he defined rights, right to choose and select fairness for himself and chose to abandon all of that and lay it aside to become nothing to serve us. And so people often fight for the very thing that Jesus gave up. We try to grab hold of and achieve and accomplish the very place we think is going to bring us happiness, our joy, our peace, our self-esteem, our self-respect, or satisfaction, our significant, fighting for the very thing Jesus laid aside. And for the very thing that we couldn't get anyway because it's not possible for us to achieve that. The only one who could chose not to. And that's when we say, Jesus saved my soul. I give my life to you. I want to follow you. I want to be one of your disciples. This is the Christian leader we follow, the one who saves us, the one we commit to. Now thinking about what I'm talking about today, which is leadership Jesus style, it's impossible, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to lead others well, whether it's our family our spouse, our friends, influencing those we work with, influencing those we run to the grocery store at, we drive by on the highway, or simply choose to lead in a church community, in a family, as a, as a pastor, a teacher, a leader, a welcome, or executive person in a church, whatever it might be. So if we're miserable, if we're simply miserably unhappy, miserably unhappy people do not lead well. They do not shine that light well. You do not reflect Christ well, they just can't do it. Happy people do. Happy, secure people. People with peace in their heart. People that have assurance of who they are and what they are about. They do. And that's what the Lord is offering in this chapter in his own life. With the very last, he knelt and washed his own followers' feet. And he had the right to demand they wash his See how he changes everything. And that, real quickly, is what a disciple is. In a nutshell, what a follower of Christ is. Now, three things to look at. And the first thing is the word authority. For us to move past or get to this place I'm talking about today and the Bible's talking about is the authority question must be answered. 
we've got to get serious with that question. Who has authority in my life, if anyone? Am I willing to submit my life to the authority of God? And of course, biblical faith that directs and guides that authority for God in our lives. Am I willing to do that? Jesus got that right at the very beginning when he at the Mount of Temptation, where there, as he struggled with the evil one, the devil, we're told, and dealt with three temptations, each time he submitted his life to the authority of God. It's not my word, not anything about me, not by bread alone, but by the words of God that come to me. He talked about those kind of things. And he would worship only God. We have to decide if God is God or not if God is sovereign in our life or not, if God's the authority in our life or not, if God can be trusted or not, if God loves us enough to say, yes, I will kneel before God or not, we have to decide the authority question first. The word here is obedience. He became obedient to God. He became the Savior of the world. Are we willing to do that, live that way, find that place? And I'm convinced peace is found when we submit to the authority of God in our life. As long as we struggle with it, we're going to deal with anxiety and fear and all kinds of things that stem from that, which are very evident in the world we live in today because of I've got to have my respect and I've got to have fairness and my rights are all that matters to me and nothing, nobody else does. That's the first thought. Second one is identity. Identity. We have to know who we are. Jesus knew who he was all the way through. He knew who he was. And I've got some quotes here for you that I'm going to put on the wall for you. First from Soren Kierkegaard. Not sure many of you have his book on your nightstand or his writings on your nightstand. He's a philosopher. Uh, and I don't read him very often, but I love this quote. And here's what he says, and it's about sin. Sin, we're talking about sin today. Have you talked about sin in your church today? So, sin is a despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from him. To find, to find some significance, some sense of respect, some identity, some reason why I am separate from the God who created me, who sent Jesus Christ to save me, who wants to walk with me in my life. And what Jesus knew and he teaches us, you can't do it. And because of that, sin is born. Selfishness, all that matters is me. I don't care if I hurt others. It's okay to be bitter and resentful and angry at those around me because they're not giving me my fairness. Or they're not giving me my rights. They're not giving me my due. They don't respect me. And we find ourselves falling into misery and creating misery for other people in the same process, especially those who know us and love us the most. That's his definition of sin, and I agree with it. Second quote here. Then I'll know I'm not a bum. Rocky, or the movie Rocky. You may have seen that or heard about it if you haven't seen it. And that, that line comes when, he, when his wife basically says to him, Rocky, and I'm going to paraphrase what she said, why do you want to go in there and have that guy beat you up? Because it's Apollo Creed. He's, number one, he's a number one boxer in the world. You can't win. Why are you doing it? Why are you training and working so hard, preparing for a night? You're simply going to lose and get beat up and, and be miserable in the process. And he says, well, I, if, I, if I go in the ring no matter what, I'll know I'm not a bum. And somehow that time in a ring for a few minutes is going to bring significance to what he thinks is an insignificant life. 
our meaning to what he thinks is a meaningless life, our success to what he thinks is a failed life, and he's going the wrong place. It can't be found there. How do I know? Because I saw the rest of the Rocky movies. <laughs> it didn't work at all. Thirdly, the next quote, Harold Abraham. I want to see if anybody recognizes the name Harold Abraham and this line as well. I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. From char- uh, the chariots of fire. And he's preparing to, to run a race and he wants to win a gold medal. He's been working for years trying to speed up and do better and work harder. He has a trainer, one of the few that had a personal trainer to prepare for doing that. And he's asked, why are you working so hard? Why are you giving it all? And by the way, Harold Abraham was, a, was an atheist in the movie. He's not a believer in God at all. The hero was. And he said, well, I have 10 lonely seconds, lonely moments to justify my existence. Just 10 seconds in running that race that I'll be able to justify that I have a reason to exist. My life has some kind of meaning or significance. I, I actually matter. I, I'm important. Uh, and if that's all I got, that's what I'm going to do. And by the way, he had to win to get it, and he didn't. Fourth quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller began a church many years ago in Manhattan. He was told you can't. It's a Presbyterian church. He was told you can't start a church in New York. They're not going to go to church here. They don't hardly believe in God here. Church is not part of their life. He says, I think they will if I preach and and have a clear picture of who God is. I think they'll come. And 6,000 people come every weekend now in New York City. Planted new churches across the nation, much like that one. Though he was just retired this year. He's working full-time like I am, serving other churches that Tim Keller is. And this statement is important to know. Identity apart from God is inherently unstable. If we try to find it anywhere else but God, he is saying we're going to fail in it. We're going to crash and burn. We're going to fall over. We're not going to be able to get up. It's not going to work. The only stable identity is found in the one who created us, Send us a Christ to save us, who's willing to walk with us and redeem us into everlasting life. And of course, teaches us the right way, the way Jesus says, which is, I became nothing to become everything. I gave up everything to get everything. I served everyone because that's who I am. That's my identity, and that's the next verse, or the next quote, which is a verse. Think of yourselves. We already read it. Read it again. The way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status. He could have. We can't. Yet people still try. They still fail. Still crash and burn. And God still says, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, my way of life upon you, and learn from me what I have taught you, an example for you, and you will find rest for your souls. Peace, happiness, identity. Well, the third word here, point, is attitude. The word mindsets in this translation of Scripture, many use the word attitude, uh, what our attitude is. And I'm going to make this as clear as I can. Too many of us let the world around us manage our attitude. Too many of us let the world around us manage our attitude. Someone disrespected me, I have the right to be angry, bitter, resentful, and miserable. And that's what I'm going to do. 
How many in our world do that? How many of us find our season that we did that or maybe even doing it now? It's not fair. I didn't get the raise. I didn't get the promotion. The person I, I, I love, I thought I could count on, left me. I'm having these issues. I went to the doctor and I got a bad report from, from about cancer or heart disease. It's just plain not fair at all, you know. And, and we get ourselves into that kind of thing and we allow that to manage, or we sometimes allow that to manage our attitude. I didn't get my rightful due. I didn't get what I was owed. I didn't get what I deserved. I didn't get what I worked for. Somebody ran me off the road or cut across me from front of me on my way to work. Or I didn't meet all the, all the lights didn't turn green when I thought they should. I was late, you know. There's little things, big things, all kinds of things. We let the world manage our attitude and anxiety and fear and anger and resentment and bitterness takes over. We can't let traffic and politics and broken relationships and encounters at work manage our attitude. Jesus didn't. If he did, he would have stopped. The very beginning, he never would have got past the Mount of Temptation. Never got past the disciples being invited. They never did quite get it right in the three years they were with him. He never would have certainly got past the garden. He would have never gone to the cross. But his attitude was not managed by, it was not managed by what was around him. Only what was in him. And the God he knelt before and said, I, I, you are my heavenly father, not my will but thine be done. And that place is where he found the peace and happiness we all seek. And it's so clearly defined for us in Philippians chapter 2. Now in my own life, I have to deal with this as we all do because I'm human. My instinct is to demand respect. My instinct might be, I want fairness. I, I certainly know what my rights are and I think I should have them. I, I lean toward that if I'm not careful. And so I have to really say, how do I do this? And I, Lord, I've got to ask God to help. I can't do it by myself. And so it's a continual process. And here's how I know if I'm not doing it right. I'm not as happy as I should be. I don't have that joy and peace in my heart that I want. And when I feel that, I know automatically this is why. I begin to let the world manage how I feel instead of the God that I love and who loves me. So here's a very simple prayer that I pray. And I didn't write this down for you, so I've, been, I've encouraged early services to let us know. I'll, I'll post it on Facebook for those who do that later on, you know, what it is. And I pray this, this real quickly myself all the time. I'm not going to be miserable. I'm going to be happy. I am blessed above all people that my sins are forgiven. It comes from not just that idea of sins forgiveness. It comes from King David who had everything we think is important. He was a king, lived in a palace, had whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted it. He had achieved, accomplished. His title was a pretty good, big, big title. He's king, that's all you need. And he said, I'm blessed with everybody that my sins are forgiven. All the rest doesn't matter at all. And I go on to say that I belong to God. God is with me. I'll see God one day. My life's in Christ. And when I remind myself of that, I'm drawn toward, okay, that's who I am. That's my identity. That's where my attitude comes from. That's how I understand myself. And the authority is, the authority is what the same passage we read already says, Jesus Christ is Lord, my Lord, of the glory of God the Father, which we are called upon to proclaim continually in worship services and songs we sing, prayers we pray, even the Lord's Prayer, and probably other places outside of church. I'm sure that happens for you as it does for me. Jesus did, not, Jesus did not let the world around him manage his attitude. 
And that is what led him to walk to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, to kneel in a rock and say, God, not my will of thine be done. He could have said, these people don't deserve this. They don't deserve my love, my life. They don't deserve anything. But it's not how he lived. He'd already made a decision long ago. He made himself nothing to become everything. He gave everything to, he, he gave everything to get everything. And he's the one we choose to follow. The Palm Sunday crowds did not fool him. The Pharisees did not break him, and the cross did not kill him. The Palm Sunday crowd celebrating and throwing palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and celebrating, who later on would say, crucify him, they didn't fool him what they were telling him. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, the Roman leaders who were going to kill him and tried, did not break him. And the cross, the cruelest of death, did not kill him. Three days later, we have the resurrection, which is our faith, the story of our faith. Jesus submitted to the sovereign authority of God. He knew his identity. His attitude was decided long before he had to make decisions. And he was a leader like no other. That's the foundational truth, I believe, for all effective leadership in a church, in a larger denomination, in a family, in a workplace, wherever God calls those who are His to serve and live, to make themselves nothing, to become everything. I'll say it again. We can't do this on our own. And so I'm going to say a prayer now for all of us. For those online, so glad you're joining us wherever you happen to be on vacation or at home or not able to be here because of ill health. There are many who do that. Those who may watch later on online in this church uh, through uh, looking at days gone by. So will you bow with me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, you know us well. But God, today we're here because our heart somehow being turned towards you as our Heavenly Father. We found our way here to what's called church, what's called worship, what's called celebration, what's called gathering among believers in Jesus Christ. And so here we are. And God, we struggle with respect and significance and meaning and purpose. We struggle with the role and our identity and who we really are and who we're really not. We struggle with authority, giving it up and giving it away and even giving it to you. Today, Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us with this. May your Spirit touch our hearts and lives in such a way that Christ wash us of all that was, of all that new can be. May our future be directed, God, the way that Jesus was. And in that, find magnificent happiness from that place, Lord. From that moment, give it to those we work for, those we love and live with, those we go to attend church with. And in that, God, may peace be found. Our prayers in Jesus' name, amen.